This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And away we go. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett and you found us. This is The Conspiracy Show. And you, dear listeners, are the greatest audience on the planet. I really mean that. Night owls are... I truly believe generally more intelligent, creative, open-minded, aware. And this show simply would not work at any other time. People who listen to this show, our our research shows, settle in and listen for the entire program. We have morning shows, afternoon drive shows. People listen in their cars and they actually don't even listen really. The show is more like wallpaper in the background. And they listen for however long their commute to work or back home. That might be about, you know, 15, 20 minutes. So you simply cannot tackle the kind of subject matter we do on this show in that amount of time. Now listen, the the money is in the morning and drive home shows. But I wouldn't trade you, dear listeners, for all the money in Christendom. Well... Maybe I'm overstating that a bit, but anyway, you get, you get my point, I hope. Uh, listen, on a sad note, we lost Dr. Roger Lear yesterday, noted ufologist and investigator of alien implants, uh, best known for his claims that he assisted in the removal of some 12 implants from patients. According to a March 15 post, at the late podiatrist and ufologist's website, Alien Scalpel, the Southern California researcher and author, was widely known throughout the UFO community for his surgical removal uh, uh, and the study of what some believe to be alien implants. Preliminary reports suggest Lear passed away while awaiting foot surgery related to a 2010 car accident that occurred while returning home from the International MUFON Symposium. And he apparently was battling a long and unspecified illness. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Lear on a number of occasions. I visited him at his office in uh, Southern California uh, to tape a television episode of The Conspiracy Show, which that episode has not aired as yet. Hopefully one day it will. 
Uh, and I met him several times at the International UFO Congress, which is held every February in Phoenix. A nice gentleman. He'll be missed. Uh, welcome to new affiliate, KOTA AM Rapid City, Iowa. And they'll begin, uh, begin carrying the show. Let's see. Uh, March 29th. Rapid City is in South Dakota. That's our first affiliate in South Dakota. So K-O-T-A-A-M, I'm honored to be part of your lineup. Okay. Now, last week I mentioned that I'd been invited to participate in a roundtable debate on global warming or climate change. And I uh, joined two other skeptics, and we faced off against five global warming alarmists. I use the term unapologetically. Uh, in any event, so you do the math, five against three. Well, if you saw the program, you probably wondered where I was. I, I was there. I got to speak for about a total of 60 seconds. The program was edited, and just about everything I said uh, ended up on the cutting room floor. It's their show. It's it's their prerogative, and uh, as I say, that's showbiz. Uh, but tonight, I thought I could sort of redress that situation. I, I have a, a noted climatologist with me for the next hour, who's one of the world's leading skeptics on the matter of anthropogenic climate change, meaning he doesn't believe human activity is responsible for global warming. So this will not be a roundtable debate. I have not invited alarmists on the program, and this is what I call equal time, because quite frankly, you only get to hear people like my guest on shows like mine, and that's a shame. Uh, In fact, on his uh, website, uh, friendsofscience.org, there's a wonderful quote, and I believe it's from Thomas Huxley, who says, Skepticism is the highest of duties, an unverified, unverified belief, the one unpardonable sin. In any event, a great pleasure to welcome back to the program renowned environmental consultant, former professor of climato- <clears throat> excuse me, climatology at the University of Winnipeg. He served on many local and national uh, committees, and as chair of provincial boards on water management, environmental issues, and sustainable development, Dr. Timothy Ball's extensive science background in climatology, especially the reconstruction of past climates and the impact of climate change on human history and the human condition, make him the ideal head of the National Resources Stewardship Project. His other work in such areas as water resources, sustainable development, pollution prevention, environmental regulations, the impact of government policy on businesses and economics will be invaluable. At NRS, as NRSP tackles other issues starting later, uh, which began rather in 2007. And he is the author of a brand new book entitled The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. Dr. Timothy Ball, how are you, sir? I'm fine, Richard, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. And um, yes, I, I uh, feel sympathy for your situation on that panel that's all right um, i don't want to dwell on it i was i was uh, honored right. that they would ask me uh, i just yeah. you know if people were wondering you know uh, after i had mentioned that i was going to be on the program where was i <laughs> so yeah. i just I, but, but i think there's an important point to make richard because i was invited and turned it down now that of course is is a surprise to many media people i turn a lot of programs down and they can't believe it they think anybody would do anything to appear on the radio or tv but here's the point that I make about uh, I'm prepared to debate with anybody. I've always always said that I'll debate with anybody. But here's the situation: if you if you before if it's before the public, so the public are listening to the debate. If you have two climate uh, specialists debating, the public simply don't understand what they're talking about. 
if you have um, anybody else debating climate, then it becomes a, a political harangue, uh, you know, ad hominems, personal attacks, and, and uh, you know, you don't care about the planet and all this other uh, political nonsense. So it really achieves nothing. And uh, so that's uh, uh, what you're doing tonight, and I really appreciate this opportunity, Uh, not that I'm afraid to debate, but because uh, we need to get the facts out there and and let people hear the other side of the story and make up their own mind. I keep Uh, reading uh, uh, in uh, Scientific American magazine, uh, Time magazine, other notable publications, uh, even some of the the climatology uh, or the climate uh, uh, science uh, institutions, that we are now officially into the 15th, 16th, or maybe 17th year of a global cooling trend. uh, And yet, even that now is still being disputed by the, the climate the climate change alarmists. Are we, settle this for once and for all for me, if you can. Are we in a global cooling trend or not? Yes, we are. And uh, it began, as you said, uh, 17 years ago. Um, I, I put it at uh, the turnaround in ni- 1998, and uh, we've been on a cooling trend since then. Um, and uh, it, it, this fits in with what Thomas Huxley said uh, 150 years ago. He said, the great bane of science is a lovely hypothesis destroyed by an ugly fact. And, of course, <laughs> the... The idea that um, the global temperature, even if even if you say, okay, it, it's just leveled off, it's not supposed to have done that, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, because what they've argued is that uh, CO2 increase, uh, as CO2 increases, the temperature increases. And um, they worked very diligently up till uh, year 2000 to make that argument and say, look, see, this is what's happening. But since 2000, the global temperature has leveled and gone down, but CO2 levels continue to increase, which is in complete contradiction to what they claimed that they were 95% certain about. And and so, of course, they're scrambling around, and, and we hear all of the excuses of, oh, the, it's the, the heat's hiding in the ocean, and it's just a hiatus, and it's just a pause, and all of this other stuff. Um, but, but as I said, it's simply not supposed to happen. Well, last night we had hail in Saudi Arabia, a snow in, uh, in India. Uh, in December we had snow in Cairo for the first time in 100 years. And I understand that those are isolated. You have to look at the we, – we keep hearing this term average global temperature. But I'm thinking what the heck is an average global temperature when two-thirds of the Earth's surface or whatever it is is covered in water? And uh, I mean that – the uh, the number of sensors that that record the temperature on the land i mean they they are a bunch of them disappeared in china that was a big scandal uh what is an average global temperature well what they claim it is uh, is 14.7 degrees celsius but it as ross mckittrick at guelph university has written a wonderful article on that there is no average global temperature Uh, um it really is a meaningless thing um and uh so this this argument about what what a global mean temperature is and what trend and what direction it's going and then what's causing that change in the trend um are are very central to the whole debate and uh but of course the the part of the problem is those 
serious scientific debates have been overtaken by the use of climate, uh, particularly global warming initially, for the political agenda. That's what it's being used for. Uh, and, and some of the keys of that were when they start talking about consensus. Well, consensus is nothing to do with science. It, it's got to do with politics. And the use of the word skeptic. Uh, for, the, for the public, a skeptic is somebody who really doesn't believe in anything. Whereas in science, you have to be a skeptic. You have to challenge everything. I mean, that was the, the whole point of that quote that you read earlier. Um, and and um, so uh, to call a scientist a skeptic is to call him what they, what they should be. The biggest problem in today's world are scientists who, who don't, are not skeptics, that they, they buy into uh, anything and accept anything without questioning it. And, uh, and that, that and, and it's like Richard Lindzen said about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. He said, you know, the, the consensus or the agreement on the science was, was settled before the research had even begun. And, and that's what's been going on. So uh, the idea about what is an average global temperature, yes, you, you can take all the data from around the world and average it out and come up with a number, um, but it, it, it's, it, really is, it really has no meaning. Here's the other uh, um, point that has sort of been bandied about, and, and uh, I'd like to get your take on it. That has to do with the, the levels of CO2. And we'll get to this. We hear the music percolating up, and we'll we'll talk about this on the other side. But whether or not uh, CO2 is a lagging indicator, in other words, what comes first, increased CO2 levels followed by a rise in temperature or a rise in temperature by CO2? I mean, has that even been settled? And we'll discuss that with Dr. Timothy Ball, the author of The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Dr. Timothy Ball is with us, and the book is, his new book, The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. Before the break, uh, Dr. Ball, I was asking you about whether or not CO2 is a lagging indicator. In other words, there, there, are, there is an increase in CO2 in the atmosphere, but does that come first, then the rising temperature, as we're being told, or does it work the other way around, or do we even know? Well, we do know, and um, it, of course, the first thing people need to think about is why has all of the attention been on CO2? Um, it is a very, very minor gas in the atmosphere. And of those gases that they call greenhouse gases, that is gases that supposedly uh, prevent heat escaping from the Earth's surface out to space or slows it down, um, it's less than 4% of the total greenhouse gases. And water vapor is by far the most important. But beyond that, uh, they also so so why have they picked that one little gas to focus upon? And then, um, and the answer is, by the way, uh, and I talk about this a great deal in the book, because uh, they wanted to argue that there were too many people and people that were practicing industry uh, were putting out CO2 that was causing uh, global warming and was going to destroy the Earth. So it became the focal point. Uh, they've, they've distorted it to the point where you've got the President of the United States talking about carbon pollution when he really is talking about CO2. And carbon's a solid and CO2's a gas, so he's got that confused. And then CO2 isn't a pollutant. It's a nutrient. It's a nutrient, exactly, for the plants. And um, in, in a sort of tongue-in-cheek thing in one 
the submission to the Supreme Court that I was involved in, we we proposed that we'd get power of attorney on behalf of the plants to vote against any attempts to reduce CO2 <laughs> in the atmosphere. Uh. It's sort of a Greenpeace kind of game, you know. But 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 uh, your specific question is it goes to uh, what they what they assumed. They said if CO2 increases in the atmosphere, then the temperature will go up. And then they assumed that CO2 will increase in the atmosphere because of uh, countries industrializing, burning fossil fuels and producing more CO2. And um, so that was, a, that was a fundamental assumption. And um, it's, Richard, in any scientific hypothesis, you know, you're saying, well, this could happen if, if, if. So the hypothesis is based upon certain assumptions. The fundamental one that uh, human industry will cause runaway global warming, the fundamental assumption is that um, uh, CO2, an increase in CO2 will cause an increase in temperature. The problem is that in every single record we have of any duration, of any time period in history, the temperature increases before the CO2. In other words, it's the complete opposite of the assumption that they make. And um, just to put this in a scientific term, like with Einstein's um, theory of relativity and his formula E equals MC squared, which of course the most famous formula in history, um, what what that uh, what the assumption there is nothing can go faster than the speed of light well if you're going to undermine einstein's theory you don't attack the formula the formula is the end product of logical mathematical uh, working out of your assumptions so what scientists are doing trying to not discredit uh, uh, Einstein, but simply, as science does, is constantly challenging, constantly trying to, uh, it's never settled, which, of course, when Al Gore said that was such a stupid thing. But, but scientists are, are trying to find things going in, in the universe, going faster than the speed of light, and some claim that they have. Well, that doesn't necessarily reject the theory of relativity, but it certainly uh, undermines a major, major assumption that you've made to come up with E equals MC squared. Well, in, the, in the, uh, the, hy- the global warming hypothesis, which is um, usually referred to as the anthropogenic global warming, AGW, the basic assumption there is that um, CO2, uh, if it increases, the temperature will go up, and it will increase because humans are producing more of it every year. And, and therefore, on the basis of that, they're saying, well, you've got to, you've got, you've got to shut down the industry. You've got to, got to reduce the population of the world, and, and, and that, that's the issue. Um, now, the idea, when, when the CO2 uh, argument was put forward initially, um, and then in 1991, the ice cores from Antarctica came out, and in the bubbles in the ice cores in Antarctica, they claimed that they could detect and measure CO2 changes over time. They also argued that they could de- determine temperature uh, from the gas bubbles in, in the ice from the ratio of oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 isotopes. So they produced these graphs, and it was actually a French group uh, that, that did it. 
and and uh, it showed the temperature going up and down over a 420,000-year record with the glacials and the interglacials and so on. But it also showed the CO2 going up and down, and everybody leapt on it and said, oh, there it is, there's proof. But not even five years later, um, uh, people looking at the data and looking at the uh, what was going on noticed that, in fact, the temperature was changing before the CO2, not the other way around. And since then, of course, every single record that we've got shows that, that um, uh, relationship. So that throws out the fundamental assumption of the whole claim that humans and human CO2 is causing global warming. Now, the other thing that happened, Richard, was that in, in, after 1998, or up to 1998, they were talking about global warming because the CO2 was going up and um, uh, the temperature was going up. Uh, but then after 1998 and starting around 2000, the CO2 continued to go up, the, but the temperature started to go down. They didn't go back as proper science would do. They didn't go back and say, look, there, our, our hypothesis is wrong. We need to revisit the science here. They didn't do that. They moved the goalposts. They stopped talking about global warming and started talking about climate change. Now, let me uh, jump in yep. here because I'm told um, that the term climate change, or rather the term global warming, was a media-invented term and that the original um, the, you know, the IPCC and so forth, they, they never talked about global warming in the beginning. They always talked in terms of climate change, which could mean, you know, uh, uh, cool periods of cooling or periods of warming. But the idea is that it's anthropogenic. It's being affected by these CO2 levels. That It was never initially called global warming. And so when we say, ah, you've moved the goalposts, they're saying, not true. We never started off calling it global warming. No, that's not true. They did start out calling it global warming. Now, you can say they didn't do it. Margaret Thatcher was one of the first ones to start this, um, again, for a political agenda. See, Thatcher wanted to get rid of the coal miners' union in Britain, and she also wanted to introduce nuclear power. So she got her science advisors, and one of them, by the way, was Lord Monkton, who's now opposing what's going on. Um, and they, they put together this stuff saying that, you know, CO2 is... is causing an increase in temperature and because that was that was Thatcher's political agenda that they wanted to fulfill. I could never understand why why Margaret Thatcher would have been uh, thank you for for clarifying that because I mean yeah. I was a fan of Thatcher I know that wouldn't yeah. sit well with a lot of people uh, but I could never understand why she would jump on board with that and now you've explained it. Well it, it, it it's what politicians do they always look for some academic or some scientist to justify their political um, theories and ideas. If they can say, well, some, you know, and it's the same way you see in academia. You take any university first year course, they got to find some Greek 2,000 years ago that said, you know, that started about it. It gives a legitimacy to it. And, and by the way, um, even Hitler, Hitler's ideas of, about, um, you know, exp expanding nations and, and powerful nations taking over weaker nations. Um, and he used the um, the the or the, well the pseudoscience of, of of Friedrich Ratzel, who was a German geographer, who said that nations were like like um, cells in a body, and they grew and expanded at, at the uh, at the expense of weaker cells around them. 
and and so all all of these political leaders uh, do this they look they they'll either start from the academic idea kennedy did that he he took uh, saul cohen's idea about politics in a divided world and the the use of trade uh of food i should say for um, a trade weapon um so they all do that but this is what thatcher was doing um after thatcher of course it became more different uh, once Morris Strong uh, took a, over the whole thing, it, it was um, using, he, he actually s- created an agency called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which he then um, uh, filled up with scientists who were going to agree with him. I mean, Sir John Houghton, for example, had long been talking about the evil of industry uh, and industry as a sin and uh, the production of CO2 as a sin. And he became the first chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And Maury Strong, uh, Strong, I think this is another quote you have on on Friends of Science. Uh, Strong, I think, at the 92 Earth Summit said that the only way, the only chance we have of saving the Earth is for a collapse of industrialized society. Yes. Well, he, he made that, uh, he initially made that as, as a hypothetical uh, in an interview with a woman by the name of Elaine Dewar. Now, Elaine Dewar w- w- wanted to write a book uh, praising Canadian environmentalists like David Suzuki and Elizabeth May and, and uh, Maurice Strong. Uh, but the more she uh, dug into these people, the more she found they were more corrupt, more driven by a political agenda, um, and the, using the environment for their political agenda than the people they were attacking. And uh, so Elaine ended up writing a book that, that was the complete opposite of what she set out to do. Now, I spoke to Elaine about four years ago and said, it's time you updated it. She said I wouldn't go near it. The hate mail, the, the threats, uh, it was unbelievable. She, I, I couldn't believe it. But she spent five days with Morris Strong at the UN, and she said, you know, Strong is using the UN... Um, as an agency to perpetuate his idea of one world government um, and um, you, you know using using the environment uh, as as the uh, stick to beat people over with over the head with and um, so yeah that Murray Strong um, orchestrated it but I, I think that Strong's ideas. Um, and the way he did it was was quite different than what Thatcher was doing. Uh, it was political. There's no question about it. They're they're all into the politics of it, but it it's it's the degree to which or the the degree to which you're doing it, and the degree to which you want to control people's lives. Because you see, Thatcher as a conservative wanted less government. She wanted less control on people's lives, uh, whereas Strong wants total government and total control. That's my concern. I, I, yeah. I definitely see uh, a, a Malthusian, a, a Malthusian uh, agenda here lurking in the corner behind this, uh, much of the green movement. And people tend to think that these are grassroot, grassroots movements, but they are, uh, to my mind, and what I've read, uh, imposed from above. For example, yeah. uh, these uh, uh, local environmental initiatives uh, that are moving into um, – uh, uh, municipalities and regional governments and they're forming these non-representative boards that are dictating land use. Yep. Uh, this to me is quite scary. And oh, totally. uh, I'm definitely doing a, a, another show in the future about Agenda 21, but I see 
a, a soft totalitarianism behind a lot of the green movement. And I mentioned that on the panel the other night, and they were looking at me like I, I had two heads. Oh, of course. Uh, and by the way, I'd love to do the Agenda 21 program with you because I've looked at a great deal of it. See, when Maurice Strong set up the United Nations Environment Program, and, and Elaine Dewar said to him when in the interview, and he made that comment about shutting down the industrialized nations, and she said, well, you know, what, why, if you cut that idea, why don't you run for politics? He then made probably the most honest statement he's ever made in his life because he said, oh, you can't do anything as a politician. And she said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the U.N. where I can get all the money I want and not be accountable to anybody. <laughs> there you go. I guess that was before he fled to China after the Chicago climate exchange fiasco and then the oil for food debacle. Well, and yes, his, he and his son made millions off of that oil for food debacle. Uh, scandalous. Did, by the way, as did um, uh, Kofi Annan and his son. Exactly. The, Listen, the uh, the UN. They gotta, were in cooch together on that. Got to take, take a break, uh, Dr. Ball. Yep. The deliberate corruption of climate science. More in a moment. The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science, the latest book from Dr. Timothy Ball. I want to talk about uh, the um, these computer models. Uh, and the prediction, of course, is that uh, – or what we're being told is that these computer models verify CO2 will uh, – the increases will, will cause significant global warming. Now, my brother-in-law, um, his area of expertise is marketing. And he said now uh, – well, he's not a mathematician – a huge part of what he does is to study the outputs from models. Uh, in, in other words, the predictive power of, of a model. And he said he uh, looked at what he called the R-squares. This is not, this is not something that, uh, that I understand. I mean, you can, you can uh, maybe explain it better than I, uh, I will. But he said he looked at the R-squares from these, com- these computer pr- models, which suggest the possible range of outcomes, the prediction. And he said these R-squares are, are, are too wide. In fact, they don't provide the confidence needed upon which one would base a massive investment. And I think we're looking at about a trillion dollars so far that has been spent um, to stave off um, uh, CO2 levels. Uh, so in other words, let's say for a climate model, they predicted a, a two-degree rise. And the statistical confidence window um, – the, the, the result is accurate to minus three degrees 95 percent of the time or more politically pal- palatable, let's say, plus or minus one degree 60 percent of the time. So uh, he says the 95 percent is something of a mathematical standard when you're describing statistical confidence. So when you see one stated with less than 95 percent, alarm bells should ring. So he, again, he's saying the R squares – that suggests the possible range of outcomes. This is the prediction. They're too wide. Does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. Um, let's, let's go back a bit with this because, um, and I'll, I'll build up to the computer models and what, what your uh, friend is saying. Um, when Maury Strong set up the uh, United Nations Environment Program and then at Rio and then Agenda 21 came out of that, and by the way, one of the things they built into that is the precautionary principle, right, which is the old environmental uh, argument that, well, shouldn't we do it anyway? Um, and, uh, and in that precautionary principle in the, in the Agenda 21, it's principle 15, they say, you know, a scientific certainty isn't necessary. Well, who decides what scientific certainty is, which, of course, is what, what your friend is saying about 
the accuracy of the model and the scientific certainty. The other thing that Maury Strong did was, so the Agenda 21 was the political side of the agenda of one world government, total government control of everything. The other side of it was the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And they were set up under the United Nations Framework um, a Commission on Climate Change. They wrote the definition of climate change that the scientists in the IPCC were going to research. Now, this is a very important idea for so much of what you look at, Richard, the conspiracy thing. I used to think that government inquiries were great because you say, finally, we're going to get the politics out of this issue. We're going to get some neutral agency that's going to come in and look at all the facts, get those damn politicians out of it. Uh, Great. The very first commission of inquiry I was appointed to was in Manitoba, Canada, where there was a huge dispute over a lake, Dauphin Lake. And the the people were fighting and arguing, and finally the minister said, okay, we'll, we'll have a commission of inquiry. And I was appointed to the commission of inquiry. Uh, the first thing we get from the politician and the bureaucrats is the terms of reference and the limits of what we are to look at. And they were such that they predetermined the outcome of the inquiry. In fact, there was data that we couldn't even access. So what I did was I went to the chairman, Doug Duncan at the time, and said, look, tell the minister, unless I am given total access to all data and all information, I'm going to go to the media and say the minister is trying to predetermine the outcome of this inquiry. Well, of course, the minister decided that was a bigger political risk than giving me the information. I then discovered that there had been, over the previous hundred years, three commissions of inquiry, one as early as 1876, where they said, here's the problem on the lake and here's the solutions, and nothing had been done about it. Because the commission of inquiry was put in place just to shut people up until the problem went away. Okay? Now, if you think about... And and just to to illustrate my point, I was watching Justice Warren. What we can say with the biggest conspiracy theory is the the killing of of Kennedy. Sure. Okay? I'm watching Judge Warren, who was put in charge of the Warren Commission that was to investigate the Kennedy assassination. The interviewer said to him, well, why didn't you look at the uh, mafia connection in Dallas with Jack Ruby and, and, and all of that side? Justice Warren very calmly and quietly said, it wasn't in my terms of reference. I knew exactly Mm. what he was saying. Mm -hmm. What he was saying was, I was told not to go there. And, uh, but of course, for the majority of the audience listening, that comment just would fly right by them. And my experience is that virtually all conspiracy theories arise out of this government avoiding an issue, covering up an issue, trying to uh, divert from an issue. And and so this is what Maurice Strong did with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Okay, I've got to jump in here, Dr. Ball. We'll yep. take a time out. The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science, more. Here on The Conspiracy Show, stay with us. 
Welcome back. Dr. Timothy Ball stays with us, the deliberate corruption of climate science. Uh, I want to uh, ask you about uh, comments by um, Professor Emeritus uh, Don Easterbrook, who is at the University of Western Washington, I believe. He's a a geologist and uh, knows about, uh, you know, very well versed in climate science, obviously. And he predicted this global trend, uh, oh, 15 years ago. And he, he said it's going to happen because... I, basically, it has to do with ocean currents, the Atlantic and Pacific uh, decadal uh, oscillations or something like that. And turns out, I mean, he, he, he predicted that flying in the face of the IPCC predictions and turns out he was right. So is that, uh, is that been taken into consideration, these ocean currents? But, well, no, but, but you see, this goes back to what, you know, where we went to break just now, and I was going to tell you that the definition of climate change given to the IPCC by Murray Strong was only to look at climate change caused by human activity. Now, you cannot possibly identify that if it's there if you don't know how much climate changes naturally and, and uh, what the mechanisms of those change are. And, and of course, what, what Easterbrook is doing is saying, look, um, these other mechanisms of, of climate change, ocean current changes and so on, and um, other ones, uh, the solar uh, changes in the sun, the orbit of the Earth around the sun, and all of these things, none of those are included in the IPCC uh, reports or their computer models. And, and so for You're absolutely people, certain about that, because they deny that. They say, oh, yes, we've, we've looked at all of this stuff. No, they haven't looked at it. Um, you, you can read the report. Um, the chapter, read Chapter 8, what the, what's, what's put into their computer models. Um, and the, the thing I mentioned about orbit of the Earth, um, uh, this is called the Milankovitch effect. The, or, the, uh, the Earth's orbit around the sun uh, goes from almost circular, as it is now, to extreme ellipse, as it was 18,000 years ago. The tilt of the Earth is constantly changing. And as the tilt changes, then the climate changes. And the date on which equinox occurs is constantly changing. And we've known about these things for 150 years. Now, the argument that they're not in the uh, IPCC computer models is because they say, oh, the time scale is too long. But if you're making forecasts for 50 and 100 years, these factors come into play. They're not in their computer models. And, and um, there's the idea about the relationship between sunspots and uh, global temperature. Uh, we've known of the mechanisms since 1991. They they don't even mention it in their reports, and and so um, it, what what they put into their reports and, and study and what they put into their models predetermines an outcome that says human CO2 is causing temperature increase. Uh, but that's what they wanted to do. It's a predetermined uh, result. I. Um... I, I understand sort of the political motivation behind this. I mean, uh, politicians love to control, and it, it becomes yeah. this synthetic beast. An organization uh, just naturally, uh, you know, uh, seeks out additional control and power. Yeah. Uh, but I don't understand why uh, the media uh, uh, plays this game. And uh, yet another great quote on, on, on the website comes from the science editor at Time magazine who says, We have crossed the border from journalism into advocacy on this issue he's talking. Uh, 
I mean, do you have an explanation? Why are you so pilloried in, 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 by the mainstream media? Why do they avoid you? And why, why have they crossed that border into advocacy? Why do they get behind this? Well, because, of course, uh, the media has become about, about money, and, and um, uh, they, they're, look, they're looking for funding and, and selling their paper. And, and, of course, if they're getting money, like the New York Times, getting money from the liberals and the left wing and so on, that's what they're going to do. Now, that's shifting, of course. This is very interesting because you look at the Murdoch and Fox News and so on, and the collapse essentially of the left-wing media. Uh, I, I think, by the way, the U.S. founding fathers would be absolutely appalled because they assumed that the media would be the watchdogs for society that would would dig out this thing and, and say, "Look, here's another guy, this Tim Ball. He's 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 presenting some other facts." Uh, but the media haven't done that. Uh, and, yeah, the Time magazine uh, editor is absolutely right. They've become about advocacy rather than about being journalists. And, and anybody, any of the old guard journalists will tell you that. that, that um, in fact, that woman just quit, C, was, what was it, CBC, CBS? Uh, Atkinson, I think was her name. She said, hey, they, you know, they, they, they wouldn't uh, listen to my point of view because I was a Catholic and I, I was a woman and, <laughs> and, and all these other things. So, so um, the media have completely lost their way. Uh, and as I said, the founding fathers would be absolutely appalled at what's going on. Now, having said that, they didn't have a lot of truck with newspaper reporters. I think it was Jefferson that said uh, a person who never reads a paper is better informed than, than somebody who does. But So they, they, knew, they knew that the, what these people were about, but they recognized their important function in society. But uh, just to flip back, Richard, uh, because uh, you mentioned Malthus earlier. Yes. And, all right. Now, Malthus, his essay on population had a massive influence on our world today and our science today, far more than people realize, because Charles Darwin took Malthus's essay with him on his voyage on the Beagle, was an absolute promoter of, of Malthus's arguments that there are too many people in the world and that people that uh, shouldn't be staying alive are staying alive and so on. Now, Malthus's uh, arguments... And the, the evidence that he used was simply terrible. It was wrong, completely wrong. And what's interesting about it, and Paul Johnson's written about this, Darwin, who was absolutely meticulous in his science and having evidence for every position he took, completely ignored that Malthus did none of this. But because... Just like we see today, uh, and you'll, you'll see a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, the science of climate change and so on, that's all just terrible. But, oh, but that overpopulation, that's a real issue. That's a real problem. And, and of course, you see that's what's behind, um, you remember I mentioned earlier, it wasn't just the industrialized nations, but it, it was the, uh, the, the population that, where the population was growing. Now, Malthus's argument was that the population would outgrow one resource, that is food. That's turned out to be completely wrong. The world f produces enough food right now, crude estimates, produces enough food every year to feed 26 billion people. The problems are in the storage, the loss of the food, uh, the inadequate marketing of the food and so on. And it's also being used, let's face it, as a weapon in the developing world. Oh, right, absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, that, that was the whole point of, of, of Kennedy's uh, uh, GATT and trade and tariffs and food as, as a weapon. Absolutely. Most favored nation status and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And, but what happened in the 60s was the Club of Rome was formed, and Morris Strong, of course, was one of the founding members of that. And Kissinger and Brzezinski. Exactly. The Club of Rome decided that Malthus was right, but they took his idea that the, the population would outgrow food supply and said the population would outgrow all resources. And not only that, but those that were industrialized were using up resources at a far greater rate than all the other nations. So this brought in uh, a socialist thing. That, oh, you're, no, you're using too many resources. We're going to punish you. We're going to make you pay for what you're doing and, and give that money to the, the developing nations. That's what the Kyoto Protocol was all about. It was a redistribution of wealth. That's, I think that's the crux you. of this. That is the crux of this. And I, I also believe in, in, in the Club of Rome, in, in their documents, they talked about the need. It's almost like the, uh, the, the project for a new American century when they talked about the need for a new Pearl Harbor. The Club of Rome talked about the need for some environmental cataclysm to yep. galvanize a public support so that they could essentially institute a lot of these societal uh, controls. Oh, totally. You, you scare people to death. And what better than the sky is falling, because that's a traditional one, the chicken little thing, and, and that you're all going to fry. And, and so the global warming issue and the CO2 issue became the perfect vehicle uh, for what they were doing. Now, of course, the population issue was pushed by Paul Ehrlich in his book, book Population Bomb, and, of course, he's out of Stanford, where so many of these crazy ideas develop. But Ehrlich published a book, Population Bomb. I mean, the predictions in that are so wrong, even even 30 years later. It's, it's incredible that he has any credibility at all, but he, he does. But he also published a book called um, Eco-Science, with, and his co-author, his wife, was one, but the other co-author was John Holdren. Now, who is John Holdren? John the science Holdren czar, is, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's the science czar in Obama's White House. He's the guy that made a two-minute video about polar vortex out of the White House with all of the authority that that supposedly uh, gives. And yet the, the video has so many scientific errors in it, you don't even know where to start. Um, but John Holdren was promoting uh, eugenics. He was promoting... Um, uh, forced abortions, he was promoting uh, a limiting of, of marriage between certain people, uh, all sorts of attempts at population control. That's where Hitler got his racial hygiene uh, laws, from the United States back in the 20s. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and um, so Holdren was very, very much a part of that, and yet here he is in the, in the Obama White House. And, and, um, but a lot of people don't know that Al Gore was the key person putting together with Maurice Strong a, a po world population conference in Cairo, Egypt in 1994. Because the overpopulation issue underlies everything that they're doing. Not just the, the global warming, but, um, you know, all of it. And the next issue, by the way, is, is they're working on now is water. 
they're already talking about peak water like they talked about the fallacy of peak oil. Well, you know, words like, uh, and they, they sound nice and, and uh, uh, benign, and actually they sound quite good. Words like yes. social justice and sustainable development. and yep. uh, But these, uh, if you scratch beneath the surface, what they really mean by uh, social justice uh, is uh, they basically they don't want you to have a backyard. They don't want right. you to have private property. They don't want you to have a private automobile. Uh, you know, the smart development is they want us to all live in, in stacked houses uh, on a subway line uh, where we're told where to work, where to live, how to live, what to eat. Uh, this is where it's going. And this is, uh, you know, again, when you, when you say this to people, they look at you like you have two heads. So uh, we are going to do that show on Agenda 21, uh, Dr. Ball. And I thank you for the last hour. And um, I think, you know, hopefully we've redressed some of the uh, uh, inequalities in, in the coverage of this issue. Well, and, and as I always say, when I make presentations, I'm going to give you a biased presentation because I'm going to give you the side you haven't heard. All you've heard up to now is one bias. Put the two together and draw your own conclusions because what's happening in today's world is people are telling people what to think and how to think. And, and that, to me, is, is the end of humanity. Well, I appreciate, uh, again, your time tonight. And uh, the book, once again, is entitled The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. Very quickly, how do they get the book, Dr. Ball? The, well, they can go to my website, uh, Dr. Tim Ball, D-R-T-I-M-B-A-L-L, uh, .com, and it, it's available there. But it's also available on Amazon and Kindle. All right. Thanks again. We'll talk Thank soon. Thank you, Richard. All right. My website, com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Welcome. Permission to come aboard granted. Come on in, take off your skin, and rattle around in your bones. Wherever you are, my wish for you is a safe and warm and well-fed. Uh, Crimea has voted overwhelmingly to throw their lot in with Russia. Of course, the pundits and uh, talking heads with the mainstream media have immediately declared the vote on secession to be illegal. And, of course, the United States says they've recognized the vote. Canada, in lockstep, have echoed that. And i got to tell you, I'm really tired of Canada and uh, uh, the United States, a country I love and hold dear to my heart. I'm tired of Canada and the U.S. being on the wrong side increasingly of late. Uh, First of all, I'd like to know why was it legal for Kosovo to vote to to, uh, secede from Serbia in 2008, a vote that was recognized by the U.S. and the International Court of Justice, but it's not okay for Crimea, a country that essentially, a a region rather, essentially, that was given given to Ukraine by Khrushchev in 1954. So a very short history the connection between Ukraine and Crimea. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why it's not okay for Crimea. And while I'm no huge uh, supporter of Vladimir Putin, Russians are freer today than they've been in 400 years. And the situation in Ukraine and Crimea has nothing to do with violating international law. It has everything to do with the U.S. and its NATO allies wanting to further isolate and marginalize Russia and ultimately to put nuclear missiles in Ukraine. If they can 
fence Russia in, get them on the ropes, on their back on their heels, then they can run rampant wherever they want. Regime change in Syria, they won't have Russia to contend with. And of course, once they isolate Russia, China will be next. And again, no fan of the Chinese regime. However, we need checks and balances to prevent some of the misadventures that we've been seeing lately. The other thing, the other uh, odious aspect here, the United States and Canada and its NATO allies are supporting a neo-Nazi coup in Ukraine. One of the leaders of that uh, coup, Dmitry Yarosh, is an avowed anti-Semite with the stated, uh, stated, uh, stated goal, and he has said this, as, uh, of killing as many Russians and Jews as he can. The right sector, or Pravi sector, Svoboda and the Fatherland Party, elements of the Fatherland Party. They're dangerous, unsavory characters, and we should be ashamed of ourselves for getting behind this group. But the U.S. and NATO are becoming increasingly uh, more brazen and rather clumsy and less sophisticated, really, in their tactics. This was a muscle play, pure and simple, and the mainstream media has made no mention of the neo-Nazis involved in the Ukraine coup. To my mind, that was illegal. Those in power were largely responsible They were the ones responsible for setting Ukraine riot police on fire. They were involved in the sniper attacks. And if ousted Ukraine President Yanukovych can be blamed for anything, it would be showing too much restraint. Can you imagine if during the G20 summit that took place here in Toronto a few years back, if Toronto police officers were set on fire by protesters, if protesters violently took over government buildings, do you think they'd show restraint? The mainstream media has it all wrong on this story, and it should be increasingly obvious to any observer that they are complicit in this. This is no game. We are on the tipping point. Do you think it's wise to to, to poke the bear, to provoke the bear? I would advise against it. Okay, there, I've said my piece. Uh, the other important story, would, which is uh, shaping up, uh, quite frankly, to be one of the most incredible mysteries of this young 21st century, is the disappearance of Malaysian flight number 370, MH370. And it has been uh, over a week since the Boeing 777 and its 239 passengers and crew disappeared from radar in a flight from Kuala Lumpur en route to Beijing. And this is really my first opportunity to talk about it. Malaysian authorities are now seeking diplomatic permission to investigate a theory that the Boeing 777 may have been flown under the radar to Taliban-controlled bases on the border of Afghanistan and northwest Pakistan. This is what the independent uh, newspaper in England has, has learned. The latest revelation came as it was revealed that 25 countries are assisting in the search for the plane, intensifying challenges of coordinating ground, sea, and aerial efforts. Countries known to be involved include Uzbekistan, Pakistan, Kyrgyzstan, Burma, Laos, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, and Australia, with special assistance regarding satellite data requested from the U.S., China, and France. On Sunday, Malaysian officials examined a sophisticated flight simulator belonging to the chief pilot of the missing jet after experts said only a trained person could have turned off the plane's communication equipment and flown it off course without being detected. 
working on the theory that the plane was intentionally flown off course. Police have delved into the backgrounds of Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah, 53, and 27-year-old co-pilot Farik Abdul Hamid. Their homes were searched on Saturday, and on Sunday, experts examined the simulator Mr. Shah kept in his home, which he had built himself. Officials said they believed the plane's communication systems were intentionally switched off by one of the 239 passengers and crew on board MH370. On Sunday, they revealed that the last verbal communication which with the plane took place after the first set of aircraft communications were disabled. There have been no reported sightings or concrete leads on the whereabouts of the jet, which vanished from radar screens shortly after it took off in Kuala Lumpur at uh, 0.40 a.m. on the morning of the 8th of March, destination Beijing. Okay, so lots of rumors and conspiracies floating around. I thought it would be a good idea to enlist our resident media scientist, Nelson Thal, to sift through some of these clues. Now, you may not be aware that in addition to his credentials as an assassination researcher, former archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, Nelson is a former commercial pilot, and he also flew for the Ontario Provincial Police. Uh, police. Nelson, thanks for taking the time. How are you? It's great to be here, Richard. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. All right. Now, I, uh, I know about as much... Uh, about a Boeing 777 and the electronics and and sophisticated equipment on board as I know about, I don't know, uh, surgery. Uh, (laughs) Next to nothing, in other words. So walk me through. Uh, We're hearing a lot about, you know, uh, 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 the fact that transponders uh, or the communication systems were turned off. Um, what, what What are we talking about here? What sort of equipment was turned off? Well, it's it's um, it's quite interesting uh, to take a look at what uh, is available uh, in the cockpits because they've gone to a glass cockpit, which means it's basically no longer needle ball and airspeed. Now it's all glass. It's all the monitors, and you don't have any of the old mechanical instrumentation. It's all gone electronic. And therefore, anything, and of course, as it's electronic, it's run by a computer, that's its autopilot. The autopilot is so sophisticated, it can land blind. You can do Cat 3 Cs at London in England and take what does it that right mean? to the gate. What does that you, mean? The, you, the planes fly right to the gate, gate to gate, okay. as done by the computer. All right. So, okay, so it's very sophisticated, and the, these guys become more computer operators than they do old-fashioned pilots. But when they say that only a trained person could have turned off the plane's communication equipment and flown it off course without being detected, is that true? No, turning this equipment off is not difficult if you know where the master switch is up on top of the captain right over his head. It's always in the same spot. I've flown Lear jets, military jets, little planes. There's a master switch, and if you know where it is, you can just turn it off in a second. Uh, but 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 and, and that's they're basically uh, con, you know saying that that's what's happened. That someone turned that off deliberately. Uh, would you concur with that? Well, that's what they're saying. All That's right. what they're saying about it, certainly. Whether or not that is that. We, remember this, Richard, I think um, we should just mention, of course, we're standing on the shoulders of giants when we do and look at what's happening today. And remember Pierre Salinger and his expose of TWA 800. We brought 
Um, I work with Pierre uh, as an investigator, and we brought him on another competitor radio station, right? But That's right, Pierre Salinger shortly before his death, yes. Yeah, he, um, he never went public with anybody, but he went with us. And um, he spent a lot of time talking to us about uh, TW800 and discovered, of course, that the official story was a lie. And um, uh, um, it got him into trouble with ABC News. And remember, Benton Parton, the admiral. Uh, a brigadier general. No, no, he's oh. chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral okay. Moore. Admiral Moore, in 89, right. had to take out a full-page ad in the New York Times, and he said in the ad that the government's lying, their official story's a lie. That's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Okay, so TWA 800. Uh, <laughs> are, are you, so... And remember, Benton Parton joined that ad. So Benton Parton, and remember Parton was... Uh, the general in charge of the non-nuclear arsenal of the United States, he investigated Oklahoma Murrah building and discovered that the he ruled out the McVeigh bomb. He said the McVeigh bomb never did this damage. And he was sent in by the FBI from the Pentagon. Okay. And he signed that ad. So you had some of the top generals in the United States back in the early 90s talk about the government, that the official story is a lie. And they even went so far, Richard, let's not forget, they even went so far as to, within the ad in the New York Times, report that the National Transportation Safety Board altered and fudged the forensics. That's a heavy charge, but this is coming from the top of the Pentagon. So understand what's really been going on for a long time before this recent psyops, the Malaysian thing, hits. All right. So I want to ask you about something else, and I'm hearing – Again, knowing nothing about aircraft, uh, we're hearing about you know these uh, uh, pinging, uh, pinging signals from the plane. Uh, well, we got to remember, Richard, what is that, that we've about? got. Well, we've got black ops. We know that. Look, we've got asymmetric warfare. Guys like Gary Best battling uh, in a spy by for spy versus spy world. And there's commandos on both sides, and like Gary Best was one of the American ones. And the thing is, when these black op teams battle, the ordinary citizen becomes uh, collateral damage. That's the meaning of the Malaysian flight. That okay, I don't, but I, I know we want to get there eventually. But I want to. I just I'm trying to understand what they mean by these ping signals from the plane. Okay. Oh yeah, the, the ping. Uh, the transponder usually when. Uh, uh, has a code, and that can be seen on radar, and it's very easy to turn the transponder off. And then the air traffic controller's radar screen, which is basically not raw data, but raw data fed through a computer is then fed to the air traffic controller. If the transponder's turned off, then the computer drops that off his screen. But they're talking about these ping signals that would go directly to the engine's manufacturer. Well, there's electronic transmission locators. There are – if it crashes, there, there's ELTs that go off. Emergency location transmitters. Right. right. And there's data that's fed to the satellite from the engines okay. to a data link. All right. So listen, we'll, we'll take a time out. Uh, I hear the music. Yeah. We'll come back and, and uh, we'll talk about what you think may have happened to MH370. And we'll also invite some calls and uh, – See if we can make some sense of this. We're not going to find the plane tonight. That's for darn sure. But uh, my gosh, just 
unbelievable that something like this could just simply vanish. I mean, it's like 239 Amelia Earharts gone. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where on earth is MH370? Now, a compelling case uh, has been made about the presence on the flight of 20 employees of Texas-based Freescale Semiconductor, which makes military-grade radar cloaking technology. So this could mean the plane was basically made invisible. Uh, But for what purpose? No one knows yet. Uh, But the fact that the contractors have... Uh, or were working with several countries across Asia can only lead to the proliferation, really, of of, of more theories. Uh, uh, Have you heard about these these freescale semiconductor employees that were um, uh, on on the plane, Nelson? Yes, of course, there were. There was... uh, um, There were... uh, a number of executives in, of working for very, very high-tech companies on board the plane, companies that were successfully marketing cloaking devices for commercial airliners. So one of the theories that's floating around there is that the Chinese government knew of their presence and they diverted the plane in order to arrest them and force them to help their Air Force develop, I guess, similar technology. What do you think of that? You know, I think that it's important to realize, Richard, that um, once again, we know that this is a warfare. I mean, everybody knows backstage. Richard, I want to just play. Like, this is what I mean about everybody knows, if you're listening to Hollywood films. Um, I just want to play this, Richard, once okay? All right. Guangzhou is a chemical weapons plant masquerading as a fertilizer plant. We know this. The Chinese know that we know. But we make believe that we don't know, and the Chinese make believe that they believe that we don't know, but know that we know. Everybody knows. (laughs) There you go. Everybody knows. Steve Seagal pointed out, and he was a Navy SEAL, everybody knows. So, like, for instance... The military for sure knows where this plane is. Don't kid yourself. I mean, you can't hide from the military of a number of nations. So the question is not only the mystery of where it is, but why haven't they told us where it is? Hmm. What are they hiding? Did you say Steven Seagal? I think that was Eric Bogosian, I think. Yeah, it was Bogosian, true, yes, but it was Seagal's film. Ah, okay. All right. Sorry. Yeah, he was the star of it. You're right. It was Bogosian from the movie uh, Talk- Dark Territory. And, oh, okay. I was just thinking of uh, Eric from Talk Radio. Anyway, I digress. Yeah. Uh, Nelson Thal, former commercial uh, uh, airline pilot, uh, flew for the OPP, our media scientist, resident media scientist this year, as we discuss what happened to flight MH370. Okay, so – Richard, we've got to remember also that uh, China has basically declared an economic war on America – through the stock market vehicles, they're using economic warfare, and the United States is using. Obama just signed an executive order authorizing economic warfare against the Chinese. So you've got these black ops up there, and now a week later, a plane on its way to Beijing disappears. One thing's for sure: uh, it's it's an act of war. It's not an accident. These planes don't. Now, all the story about blaming the pilot and the machine, it's no problem. There's no, these are very, very safe aircraft, very, very safe. Uh, they fly hundreds and hundreds of millions of miles around the world, 
and they're very safe. And if something happens to it, uh, it's not an accident. Well, uh, I mean, un- un- uh, unless, as it appears to be the case, the, the pilot and perhaps the co-pilot were co-op- co-opted into this plan and they deliberately flew it off course. But uh, then the question is, you know, where does a plane like a 777 land? My understanding is it takes about a 5,000-foot runway, which sort of limits, uh, you know, the available runways in that area. Uh, Richard, I think that what we've got, got to recognize is the grammars of the media and that the argument about the pilots is a distraction because the thing was flown by an, a computer. It was taken away by a computer. It wasn't flown by men in the cockpit. They didn't rely on men. There probably were no men in the cockpit. Interesting. All right. Uh, so I mean, to talk to me a, more about know, this asymmetrical warfare then. Who um, uh, uh, do you think then it was it, it was essentially hijacked and it it landed somewhere safely and they now have well, – you know, you got General Secords and the Colonel Norths and the Gary Bess and the Pentagon people uh, doing black ops, running black operations. And you've got the other side running black operations against them. So do you think it was? Do you think it was? It, it's it has landed safely somewhere, and they have they have this plane intact to do with it what they will, and and they have two hundred and thirty nine hostages, or do you think it was blown out of the sky by a missile? Anything's possible right now. I'll tell you this: that it's I've never. There's a lot of silence and not a lot of chatter in the intelligence, uh, the desk agents community. They've gone silent. Really. And that's yeah. that's rather telling because – Well, obviously all the intelligence agencies are involved in this together. So nobody squeals because you can't you, – if you squeal, uh, then you'll be blamed as well. Uh, so you don't like the theory then that uh, perhaps this plane was deliberately flown off course and landed in Taliban-controlled uh, territory and – in uh, Pakistan, Western Pakistan or Afghanistan, or is that just a cover story? I think that the governments are engaging in commotion because that's what keeps control. Right now, the petrodollar wars, the wars, that's the war against the dollar. And this is what, where, what, this is all involved in black ops warfare within the petrodollar wars, trying to keep the American dollar as reserve currency and fiat money. This is the battle that's happening, and otherwise America will lose its standard of living. So there's a they're fighting for their currency and their way of life, and it's at and this is part of that ongoing asymmetric warfare between these black ops um, people, and they all have high tech equipment, and um, they could shoot it down or they can uh, steal it. I just want to go back to the uh, the, the twenty uh, employees of uh, Texas-based Freescale Semiconductor. Again, yes. they make military-grade radar cloaking technology, and uh, of course, much has been made made of the fact that the plane disappeared off radar. But my understanding is that uh, you know the radar stations in that part of the world uh, are sort of sp- uh, sp- spread out. Uh, and and the radar it, it has to be line of sight, so it's easy for a plane to you know to temporarily fall off radar. However, again, free scale. These, semi- these countries have always been at war over their scientists. 
during the uh, in the uh, during World War II, there was a, a war over the scientists as the as the fighting on the battlefield came to an end, and it continues. And this is here's more battling for scientists. Um, okay, so you've got twenty employees of Freescale Semiconductor. They make yeah. military grade radar cloaking technology. So again, one theory is that the Chinese government knew of their presence and they diverted the plane in order to arrest them and force them to help their their air force develop technology. Then the other possibility is let me no, get but take. they were going to a subsidiary a company. So they go back and forth all the time. So they're scheduled so everybody knows when they're gonna be on there. Well plus they were flying to Beijing. Why wouldn't they just wait till they arrived in Beijing? Uh, but the other thing is, what if the some agency within the United States got wind that the Chinese were looking to take these uh, employees of free scale under their control, and rather than risk the technology falling into Chinese hands, they destroyed the plane? I don't. I wouldn't rule it out. And not only that, there's evidence that probably that's why they put out the the. Uh, they got the search teams going in all different directions and confused, purposely so that they could sanitize and clean up the area where it actually crashed. As as we said, uh, Admiral Moore said these guys alter forensics, and of course um, they did that here in Toronto when Jeb Bush was here. They. A, uh, they, an FBI plane crashed and the Toronto police didn't investigate until after the area had been sanitized <laughs> by underwater submarines to the lake. Oh, that was the aircraft that, uh, that uh, crashed in uh, Lake Ontario. Uh, right. Yes, Which yes. we reported. Well. A hundred a mile off the, off the Toronto Island Airport the morning Jeb Bush came to town. Well, uh you're connecting dots there. Uh, we have to be careful, I suppose, about that. But um, And I remember that conversation we had in which you connected the dots, the arrival of Jeb Bush and the, uh, the, uh, the and crash the of that airplane. The crash that morning. And, a, a, and, of course, Skolnick discovered that it came out of, it came out of an FBI airport in Chicago. And uh, that was the bag man. They were doing the deal to try and get the weapons of mass destruction and they did the bag man was to arrive here to do the deal. And because the guy was headed off and cr- the plane crashed south of the airport, they didn't get the weapons of mass destruction to Iraq. The deal was done here and it failed. Uh, you mentioned uh, Skolnick. You mean uh, Sherman Skolnick. Sherman Skolnick reported that. Yeah. Uh, investigator and uh, researcher. Now, uh, and, and Sherman, did he not write a book about the use of airline crashes as a, political, uh, as a, as a weapon of yeah, political assassination? He wrote the three-part series on the history of American air, uh, political airplane sabotage. And, and, and just give me a sense of, of what he was talking about in that book or in that, in that series of articles. He, was, he, came for, he first learned of it because he was in Chicago uh, for the, um, the murder of Dorothy Hunt. And um, Dorothy Hunt, E. Howard Hunt's wife, fled with important documents uh, to Chicago from Washington, and um, her plane, they crashed her plane and made sure, and the firemen kept the, the police kept the firemen from going to the plane and kept them back. This was during the Nixon administration. They wanted everything to burn up. They wanted all the, uh, she, they wanted her dead. This had, uh, the papers that she had with her had something to do with the Nixon administration or Watergate or something? 
Well, it had to do with the Mary Fairy Terry, all the other Dr. Oshler and the connection between the cancer and the polio vaccine work that was done ah, by okay. Mary Sherman at the University of Chicago, who she worked with David Ferry and Dr. Oshner, head of the American Cancer Institute, along with Lee Harvey Oswald. Right, right. That's a fascinating chapter. So there was some great, great uh, connections there. And of course, she was murdered as well, Mary Sherman. Uh, so again, the use of uh, uh, of airplane crashes uh, uh, for political assassinations, uh, well documented. But I, I don't know. I, I don't get the. It sounds like this plane was diverted and landed someplace. I, I mean, I think it's safely on the ground. That's my sense of it. What do you think? Yeah, I really think that that uh, it's it's been commandeered, and it's they've uh, they, they wanted to show their how powerful they were that they could take one of their planes away from them any time they wanted, and um, I think that's what they did. And now they're trying to cover up that somebody was able to through a back door take control of our planes. Now, when you say they, uh, do you mean the Chinese? No, I'd say, I don't think it was the, was the Chinese I, I, uh, that would have done that. It would have been uh, the UN. The UN? Yeah, the UN troops. Explain that one. Interpol. UN and Interpol. Well, let's not forget that uh, the Waffen-SS General Waldheim seized the United Nations. That's public document. Right. That's right. well known. Okay, so, so we're he, getting into the back into the so, sort of the Nazi Internationale again. Yeah, I think that remember Pierre Salinger looked said, look, May Brussels had the had the JFK assassination the best, the Nazi connection. Salinger pointed to Brussels, and of course May and Sherman and Penn Jones got Garrison to go back into the case in '66, and they lay the charge against uh, Clay Shaw in '69 and go to court. And most of all, his witnesses were either died or they were forbidden from traveling outside California by Reagan. <laughs> well, right? I, I, uh, when we talk about the Nazi International and the rise of the Fourth Reich, uh, yeah. which seems to be what you're alluding to here, uh, I mean, I've talked to uh, to Jim Mars and and Joseph Farrell at length about about the rise of the of the Fourth Reich. This Hitler's Waffen, uh, Hitler's general Walter Dornberger, who was von Braun's boss at Pinamunda, he was sentenced to hang at Nuremberg, and the Americans grabbed him and made him vice president of Bell Helicopters, and they made a lot of money off the Vietnam War. Right, and, and yes, you've talked to me in detail about the, the Nazi connection with the, JFK the, assassination. Yes. The, J, the heavy connection to the Nazis and JFK is that uh, the lady and the family that safe-housed Oswald the Payne family, Michael Payne, worked for Dornberger, was his right-hand man at Bell Helicopters. So the connection there was, was I mean, that was how they did it. All right, there you have it, folks. Uh, Nelson Thal stays with us, and we'll open up the phone line. And it's not uh, our opinion, Rich. It's it's documented fact. You know, it's not it's it's not a matter of debatable interpretation. All right, let me get into a break here. We'll come back. Nelson Thal, media scientist, commercial airline pilot, talking about missing flight MH370. We'll make the phone lines available to you. We'd like to hear your theories. And uh, we'll continue in this vein till the top of the hour when we'll dim the lights and say good night, good morning. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
Welcome back. Media scientist Nelson Thal with us as we discuss where is flight MH370 and the 239 passengers and crew. And Nelson, a, uh, a former commercial airline pilot, uh, assassination researcher, believes that the plane has been commandeered and has implicated uh, some sort of Nazi international or uh, a Fourth Reich type group, uh, which is, I guess, battling behind the scenes. Uh, he calls this asymmetrical warfare. So, Nelson, essentially, uh, they've done this to show, to flex their muscle and to show uh, that they can do this whenever they want. Uh, so, so why aren't they taking credit for it? Uh, well, I mean, because they don't – the whole purpose is, look, commotion, if you create commotion, it, you support the dollar, because you cause people to flee to your currency, the reserve ratio currency. So they create commotion is in order to keep the, the dollar, the petrodollar, and the, the dollar going as a currency. Do you see what I'm saying, Richard? Commotion. Uh, right. By creating commotion, the, the battle over is over the dollar. They, they've got to support the dollar. They have to support the dollar. And what supports the dollar, right, because they've gone around bombing innocent and murdering, they, because they've been doing so much murdering, uh, nobody wants to take their currency anymore. They want to give it up. And he, they're going around the world threatening people to keep their currency. That's what happened in Iraq. That's what happened, that's what happened in Afghanistan to prevent the, make sure the Arabs continue to to remember, to, Richard, to buy for any country other than America to buy oil, she's got to buy U.S. dollars. America's the middleman on the deal. Right, right. But you're not implicating the United States government in this. You're saying some rogue Nazi international group. I'm saying it's the U.S. government's banking entity, the U.S. government, the Treasury, the U.S. government. But sure it is. It's the that's Benton Parton said it was the U.S. government. Okay, the, the, so then the I'm confused because you now. mentioned the Nazi International, uh, or I mentioned the Nazi International, but you mentioned the Nazis. So I'm uh, straight. Well, I said the me. Nazi connection to the JFK assassination was ah. the article by May Brussel. Okay, and, but what's it's it's not like there's a Nazi party anymore. But what there is is there's a new organization, a commando group of Nazis. Uh, that 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 are that have power and have corporations and cartels. These guys cor- control cartels, not just corporate, not just large corporations. All right, uh, we have a and caller Dave on. Emery, Sorry, Richard Dave Emery's work. People should go to and look at Dave Emery's work. He carries on May Brussels' work as well. So we're all researchers, and there's a lot of other good stuff. People who we uh, you can uh, latch onto, like especially like Emery as well, and of course you, Richard, you're doing just a fantastic job. I mean, um, exposing the the backstage door. Well, I'm playing catch up. I'm just trying to uh, you know to make uh, to make sense of it, and and uh, I thank you for uh, you know helping and abetting in that uh, goal as well. So listen, let's uh, grab a call here. And Dan is on the line uh, from California, I believe. Dan, are you there? Yes, sir. How are you doing, Richard? I'm well, thank you. Now, Dan, I understand that you work in, can I say this, the disaster and emergency management industry? That is correct, yeah. I'm uh, working on my uh, uh, master's in uh, in that field. 
And uh, we've done a lot of study and research in, into the psychology and the development of the terrorist and their mindset. And oh. Okay, so yeah. what do you think is going on with this um, Boeing 777? Our indications are, at least with the group of people that we discuss and look into, um, the terrorist groups are seriously trying to find a way to get the biggest bang for their buck, to quote-unquote destroy Satan. Um, And the U.S., as far as they're concerned, is Satan. The U.S. dollar is Satan. And what they have done, in effect, by stealing a Boeing 777, if they take it and land it in one of the areas out in the desert someplace, because you don't need a runway runway, you can land that thing in a nice flat spot that's a mile long in the middle of the desert if that's what you wanted to do, and then take it into some hangar and park it. But the 777, if you look at it, it has an operational range of almost 12,000 nautical miles. Is that right? It has the, it has the I don't want to say it, the history behind it showing that it is the largest and longest cargo carrier of any aircraft uh, that's commercially available. What is the the payload capability on the 777? It's over 100 tons. Uh, To be exact, it's it's 103.9 ton capability, carrying capability, that can travel over 11,000 miles and fly in excess of 50,000 feet. Um, okay, well, the so, music's coming up. Dan, I'll, I'll hold on to you. Uh, we'll c- carry this conversation on the other side. Dan from California checking in with um, in uh, disaster and emergency management and beginning to uh, reveal his theory as to what has happened to Flight 370. Uh, but uh, I, I need to know, okay, so we've got the, the, uh, the flight capability, nearly 12,000 nautical miles, and we know the payload, 103.9 tons, I think you said, but... If it's fully loaded, I would think that that would severely curtail the uh, the, the flight capability. Anyway, we'll, we'll get back into this on the other side. Nelson Thal, media scientist, commercial airline pilot, and uh, Dan from California, disaster and emergency management uh, insider. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where is flight MH370? Dan is on the line, uh, disaster and emergency management uh, industry insider, and you're sort of giving us the, lo- the logistical facts about the uh, Boeing 777, and you were saying it has... Uh, so I'm guessing where you're going with this is that you, you uh, believe that, that, the, that the plane was commandeered, uh, I'm guessing. Um, but let me go through some of these uh, figures here. So not, uh, the range here is about... 12,000 nautical miles, payload capacity, 103, almost 104 tons. Uh, So fully loaded then, what would be the range of this plane? Well, depending on if you're talking about full weight, you're looking between 9 and 10,000 miles according to the statistics off of the Boeing website itself. Okay. All right, so... That way, fully fueled and, and fully loaded, you're looking at somewhere around 9,000 nautical miles. Now, uh, one of the things that we're most concerned about is that we have now got, or the terrorist group or whatever group, now has a, what they call a strategic bomber. And that bomber has the capability of two things. 
One is it has enough altitude capabilities to be able to set off a small nuclear device about the size of what went off in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And if that device went off at five miles or six miles above the Earth, above the continental United States, it would immediately, and within like 15 seconds, turn three-quarters to 100% of the nation back into the buggy and horse days. So you're talking about an EMP weapon to knock out the, the power grid. Correct. Uh, not only the power grid, but all of the communications equipment, civilian communications, broadcasting towers, um, all of your refrigerators and refrigeration, all of the systems used to supply food and water supplies, uh, the utility companies, um, all of that. We would go, realistically, we would be in within 15 seconds, turn back to the uh, horse and buggy days. Richard, I have a question for him. Yes, Nelson. If that's the case, why would they go to the bother of stealing a plane? Why wouldn't they just stick it on a drone? Obviously, a drone could do that job without having to, the bother of kidnapping a plane. Absolutely. I agree with you, and that is one of the things we have discussed. Now, if they don't have their hands and they haven't been able to get a hold of a, an actual thermonuclear device, okay, like Korea gave it, gave it to them or or one of the other countries like Iran, that type of thing. Think about it. A hundred tons, if you fill that with what they call dirty waste, nuclear waste, you could fly that over the continental United States, over New York, Washington, D.C., or whatever, and if you detonated or exploded that aircraft, you wouldn't want to drive it into the ground. You'd want to blow it up in the air so you got the most amount of particulate spread over the largest area with that dirty waste, you could effectively make the entire New York City or, let's say, for example, you know, Alberta or some other country's main city completely uninhabitable. For a hundred years or more, I'm guessing. Or more. Absolutely. What about the Yellowstone caldera? Why not just sneak a bomb in there and that, that go and that'll wipe it out for sure? Do you think they can do that or have done it yet? I, I, uh, I think that what's going on, according to what we see, is an increase in sophistication. But I, again, and boy, I'm going to get in trouble here, I am not so sure that I do not agree with you in, in some of these cases. I believe personally, and so do a, a large number of members of the group that we study and we work with and run these scenarios with, we feel that there is a... Uh, how do I want to say it, a hidden agenda in the U.S. government that is helping to fund and or control um, a lot of these terrorist groups and therefore are supplying them with the technical information of how to circumvent radi uh, our radars, how to be able to get certain things in, um, what the total amount of damage it could be uh, inflicted on us in that type of area, I think that they're being funneled that information. Now, that's, well, that's exactly what we have said here. If and we, it would, that 
Yeah, we, Richard, we've we've said that here many times. Exactly that we talked about uh, during the Khomeini years, how uh, they ran the uh, the hostage ran hostage thing right from down the street from the <laughs> at the ONI building on the Pennsylvania Avenue, just down the street from the White House. So, the, yeah, I, we've I gone through that, that for sure. It's not like we haven't um, exposed it. Well, there's a whole long list of uh, America's false flags that they've managed to pull off. And I'm not so sure that this is not one of those things. Um, this was a pretty sophisticated or, uh, operation that they had pulled off here. And I really believe, in my heart of hearts, that we are, if they don't find this plane and they don't destroy this thing, it somewhere along the line, two years down the road, three years down the road, whatever, it's going to come sneaking back, camouflage in a civilian aircraft, and it's going to go off over some major city. That is uh, a pretty frightening scenario. Now, if you've got a 777 and cruising at, uh, I don't know, 42,000 feet, crossing the Atlantic en route to the United States, loaded with dirty nuclear material or a device of some sort, I mean, isn't that a pretty easy target? Well, only if you know about it. Um, you know, we've had uh, smugglers have been doing this for years. This is part of what we study is uh, how terrorists or different organizations like the cartels out of Mexico um, and the ones in Colombia, things like this, how they can disguise and or swap out equipment to camouflage their aircraft and to trade places with it. So therefore, when it comes across or when it comes into certain people's airspaces that they think is legit. Well, that brings us back to the uh, the the, uh, the employees from the um, the Texas-based company that, that that builds radar cloaking devices. Do you think that figures into this at all? It depends on how much money and who's handling it in the U.S. government. It, it, that was the that Operation Pearl, which was written by the university professor in London, Richard. He, of course, had a situation where he described on 9/11 where there was a handoff where one plane kept its transponder off, came on to another, came up to the other, started flying underneath it. One turns their transponder on, the other off at the same time, and they go their merry way and they make a swap. That's what he's talking about. And that's what the key Dudney, Professor Dudney, had that in his Operation Pearl. Remember that? Right, right. Yes, I did. Well, yeah, you're right on the money. And that's why I, our group, um, and we've studied this uh, quite extensively, that... This is all doable. We're not talking about pie in the sky. We're talking about truly doable stuff. And uh, so it's just a matter of if it can stop them before it happens or if it's going to be allowed to happen, sort of like 911 was. Right, right. Look the other Lie way on. and let it happen or make it happen. So whether we're talking about a terrorist group or a legitimate terrorist group, and I don't even know if such a thing exists anymore when I say legitimate, uh, or whether we're talking... Uh, or whether we're talking about a false flag uh, operation, uh, yeah, a very frightening scenario that they would at some point in the future, possibly, you know, once we've all sort of forgotten about flight MH370, now they have uh, a transport plane that can fly 12,000 nautical miles uh, thereabouts carry two hundred and twenty nine thousand pound payload 
essentially a flying bomb. Absolutely. Uh, now, if this thing... Down, yeah, and take down the entire U.S. economy completely. Wipe us off the map as far as economics go. Now, tell me a little bit about disaster and emergency management uh, and your, uh, what is it you actually do again? Well, what, what we're studying and what we're going through is the psychology of the actual terrorists. What are their targets? What do they do? Um, you know, we've studied uh, the different targets and, and what the Germans did, for example, uh, and before World War II with, with the sinking of, of some of the ships that brought on the entire uh, globe, so to speak, um, being so very much upset at them. Um, the same thing with the London City bombings, okay? That went global, the shock and terror. Not many people, not a large number of people died, but... It absolutely went global that this could happen to anybody. Imagine what this would do if you took out, if they didn't use the EMP. Let's say they don't have the nuclear device, but they've got the dirty stuff. Um, and to back a little bit of that up is that the nuclear supply systems that Russia has been doing, dismantling their weapons systems, that type of thing, there are places in Russia where they've been stockpiling or throwing this dirty trash, so to speak. And it is well known that those areas have been raided. And there are, that dirty material is coming up missing. So if you put that together with the aircraft and deliver that to a city, what would that do to Hong Kong? What would it do to Amsterdam? What it would it do to London? Uh, if we all of a sudden looked up one day and New York City is no longer inhabitable. Uh, let's that, say that, of course, assumes that uh, you're, you're talking about the explosion, exploding t uh, radioactive material with TNT. Yeah, right. Basically, it would be TNT or some other type of plastic explosive or something. I mean, you know, two pilots willing to die for their cause blowing up an airplane in the sky isn't much different than two guys on the ground running into the subway system in London and blowing up a bunch of people. And if they were to, to land this thing uh, in, in, I don't know, Pakistan, would they be able to reach virtually any major city on Earth, given the, given yeah, the uh, yeah, capability? Yeah, it depends on what you want. It would be easy to ferry that aircraft to someplace else if they wanted, depending on their target. But go ahead, lay a map out and put your compass on it and draw yourself a, you know, a 12,000-mile circle radius of just any place in the Pakistani area and see what you come across. Uh, Dan, well, uh, thank you for uh, for calling in. Uh, part of me wishes you hadn't <laughs> planted that seed because that is uh, a frightening scenario that you've painted, and it makes sense on so many different levels. Um, but I, uh, I think, I think you're onto something, my friend. Richard, well, one thing and I wanted to say... Um, here real quick is that this issue about this, let's say, for example, the EMP, okay, and you can validate what I'm saying and you can check it out, but if they take this, if they take it up to 10 miles, that's 50,000, 50-some thousand feet, and they blow up a one megaton nuclear device or a 500 kiloton nuclear device, most of Canada will get it. Most of, or not all of the U.S. will get it, 
and a large portion of Mexico will get it. And I get it, and I thank you. Dan in California, appreciate it. Nelson Thal, media scientist, commercial airline pilot, thank you. Thank you, Richard. Great stuff. All right, my thanks to Tim Spreen for production. Back next week, we'll talk about the pyramids in Bosnia. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.